This is RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel Murders, one-on-one interview with Stuart P. Evans. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from San Diego, California in the USA, and joining us via telephone from his home in Great Britain is author and researcher Stuart P. Evans. Joining the show today is author, collector, and researcher Stuart P. Evans, a career police officer whose books on the subject of the Whitechapel murders, the ultimate source book, Letters from Hell, Scotland Yard Investigates, The Lodger, and The Man Who Hunted Jack the Ripper, belong on the bookshelves of anyone remotely interested in this case. His collection of true crime books and ephemera, which he generously shares with others on various Ripper-related message boards, is famous. He has appeared in several documentaries on this subject and was the creative consultant on the Hughes Brothers 2001 film adaptation of the Alan Moore graphic novel From Hell. And really, although I wrote one, um, Stuart P. Evans needs no introduction. Thank you for being on the show today, Stuart. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Will you describe a bit of your background and when and how you first became interested in crime, policing, and the Whitechapel murders? Yeah, I mean, my interest in the Whitechapel murders, or Jack the Ripper, as it is popularly known, was, um, it dates back to the 50s, really. It it predates, uh, you know, any interest in the police force. Um, And uh, depending on, you know, degrees of seriousness of interest, um, I first became aware of the name in about 1957 or thereabouts, when my parents took me to Madame Tussauds in London. And we went into the Chamber of Horrors, and at that time, in the 50s, they used to have... um, the Dear Boss Metropolitan Police poster displayed in the Chamber of Horrors in a frame. And that's the, the first time I read the name Jack the Ripper, and it fascinated me, as, you know, as a young kid. And uh, I guess it just stuck with you. And back in 1961, I read my first account of the case, and the interest just grew, really. And um, obviously, I'm interested in, in all classic true crime cases as well. And I was, <laughs> as a youngster, a great Sherlock Holmes fan. And um, you, um, as a teenager, toured the sites of the Whitechapel murders, did you not? I did, yeah. I mean, uh, it was in 1967, in August. Um, I'd actually bought the two, um, what I consider, seminal books. I mean, I've got a very soft spot for the uh, for the two books that came out in 1965. I was... 16 years old at the time, and I bought um, Cullen's Autumn of Terror and um, Robin O'Dell's Jack the Ripper in Fact and Fiction, and they came out almost simultaneously, and I bought the two books, and and that really cemented my interest. I mean, I really did get deeply interested in the subject, and obviously, I think at that age, you tend to believe what you read, and um, and obviously, I I took the books in... um, you know, with great delight, and that finally led me to visiting the murder sites in uh, 1967, two years later, and actually photographing the sites that were still there. So it was quite an experience, really. Did you ever intend on um, being a, an author of Jack the Ripper books? <clears throat> no, I, I mean, I'd, I'd never thought that I would, uh, would would be able to add anything to the subject, to be quite honest, and... Um, uh, you know, I read these books, and, and obviously, you know, as a youngster, I was really impressed with Cullen and O'Dell. And uh, then, of course, um, we moved into the 70s, and, and books like Don Rumbelow's first book came out, and I was so impressed. And, uh, you know, I really had the impression then that I could add nothing to the subject myself. But, you know, it was just great to, to buy everything and, and um, you know, have that interest. Although, um, I have to say, in those days, my primary interest was aviation, 
when I was researching the American 8th Air Force that was based in England during World War II. I mean, that led, led me to meeting Jimmy Stewart, the actor, who was a bomber pilot over here in, in the war, and um, I also went to Memphis as guest speaker at a bomb group reunion. Now, in your latest book, uh, it is a revised edition of your Nick Connell's The Man Who Hunted Jack the Ripper, originally published in 2000. Can you tell us what is significantly different about this edition compared to the original? Yeah, there's a lot more photographs added to it. Um, also, over 12,000 words, which is quite a, you know, it's almost a third more text in there. And um, they quite a lot of the aspects of the case, such as, um, you know, things that have, have been recently discovered, like the um, Kosminski walking his dog uh, incident in 1889 and... Uh, the West Country MP that Andy Spalick identified, the um, Farquharson, and um, and things like that, really. And, and, and I did quite a big update on Inspector Race, who, uh, as absolutely no doubt, was, you know, his activities in 1894, 1893-94, led McNaughton to write the memoranda, um, because uh, Race was convinced he'd arrested Jack the Ripper when he um, arrested Cutbush. Right, and and it's race who we have to thank for, like as you said, the McNaughton Memoranda. Without that series of articles in the Sun newspaper, uh, we probably wouldn't have had all those names listed by Melville McNaughton. So, no, no, and, and we were helped along in you know identifying exactly what happened there, you know, locating two sort of articles that, that Nick, again Nick Connell, who's a superb researcher, he found them um, about the the, the incarcerated. Um, inmate at Dartmoor Asylum, as they called it, because they meant Broadmoor, and that was how we identified race, and, and obviously race trying to get recognition, you know, for, for solving the Whitechapel murders case, um, balked his bosses and, and went to the press, and uh, you just don't do that in the police force. He, he never actually, his professional career never recovered from doing that. In um, 1993, you obtained the Little Child letter, which was a letter from Chief Inspector Little Child to author George Sims, um, naming a new suspect, Francis Tumblety. While Tumblety's name was new to modern researchers of the case, you and Paul Ganey quickly discovered that Tumblety was widely reported in the American press at the time to have been suspected as the Whitechapel murderer. What was the impact the discovery of the Little Child letter had on your career as a true crime researcher? And how is well, your I mean, well, and and also how has your opinion of Tumblety changed over the decade and a half since the discovery of the letter and your subsequent book on Tumblety the Lodger? Yeah, right. Well, obviously, um, having read as much as I had on the subject, and just about every book and, and newspaper reports and all sorts of things, immediately I opened. It was in February 1993 that I received the Little Child letter, and I was just staggered because I knew who Little Child was. In fact, I'd already got the book of his reminiscences, uh, dated 1893, and I just couldn't believe that here was a letter <laughs> written by Little Child talking about Jack the Ripper and, and the Dear Boss letter. It, it was absolutely staggering, and I, I think it was then that I realised that, hey, I'm not going to be able to avoid writing a book now. You know, I either give all this away <laughs> and get no benefit from it myself, or I take the plunge uh, and, you know, and write a book. Well... I'd already been publishing articles for many years in aviation magazines, so I, I thought, well, I can, you know, I'm not a brilliant writer, but I think I can probably turn my hand to doing a book. And, and so, you know, the idea of a book was um, was born. And, and, and I had a few trusted friends who I confided in who advised me, Keith Skinner being one of the main ones. 
I greatly admire Keith as a researcher, and it was in fact Keith who first identified Tamilty because I gave Keith the information, and he found a report in the New York Times naming him, and, and that was, you know, it was the first time we actually identified him in, in the American papers. Coming from a background in police work, were you ever of the opinion that you could or had solved this case? No, I, <laughs> I, I think obviously you can imagine, and I think anyone listening can imagine the euphoria that I felt, in, you know, in finding this letter. Um, you know, it was just staggering. I, I mean, I really knew the import of it when when I opened it. But um, I, I think I'm realistic enough, and I... You see, the whole of my working life as a police officer, which was nearly 30 years, my bread and butter was evidence. I mean, I know evidence backwards, forwards, and every which way. Uh, and I knew I knew that I'd probably never find the evidence to prove Tumblety was the ripper. But um, he still looked good, because here you've got a contemporary police officer naming a contemporary suspect. So, you know, it's not as if it's a, you know another Maybrick or another Duke of Clarence. I mean, here I've got a genuine suspect named by a genuine... Um, police officer, and um, I, I think I was probably realistic enough to know that I wouldn't be able to prove he was the Ripper, but I think probably at the height of the euphoria, I, I did com- sort of half convince myself that, hey, you know, maybe, but um, I'm realistic, and if you, if you look at the documentary I made the following year, you'll see I say on there, there's no way we'll prove he was Jack the Ripper. So I think you've got to retain this, you know, this um, reality check. Uh, and obviously in the intervening years, um, since the book came out, it was published in in 1995, and then new information came to light, which was included into addenda to the, uh, to the 1996 edition, and the same year it was published in the USA. And um, at that time, I mean, uh, I dropped all research in the Tumblety because my interest in the Ripper predated Tumblety by... 30 years and I didn't want to get bogged down as somebody obsessed with a suspect. I wanted to become an objective historian on the case read and absorb and buy everything that there is. I mean I'd spent £1,200 on all the official records and I transcribed the whole lot uh, and doing this you, you know you, you can't really have a suspect, you have to distance yourself from suspects. You know obviously I've got a soft spot for Tumulty and obviously he did a lot for me but I'm realistic to know that, you know, that you're never going to prove he's Jack the Ripper. Do you believe that he's as strong as a candidate today as you believed when you wrote the book? No, I'd have to say no, because I think anybody involved in historical research and gathering information, you're going to come up and other people are going to come up, and there's some fantastic American... I mean, I greatly admire people like Tim Reardon and... Um, and Roger Palmer and Joe and the others who, who research Tumulty in America, I mean, they, they do a fantastic job, and they can do a much better job than I can because they're in the right place to do the research. And we've had these fantastic discoveries, like uh, Tim found the, the photo of Tumulty. I mean, I've got great admiration for Tim, and judging by the, the, the talk that he did with you, uh, you know, on a podcast, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to enjoy his book. Um, you know, I just and I think he's the right sort of guy to do it. He's not a guy of with a ripper, and I think that's the right sort of person to do the book because he's not going to be waylaid by any ideas of trying to suggest he's Jack the Ripper. And, and I think that's the right balance to get when you write a biography like that. So I think we're going to get a better book, you know, with Tim's beliefs as they are, uh, than we would if somebody was obsessed with the idea of proving that Tumblety was the Ripper. What was your reaction to the photograph when you first saw it? Well, I thought it was fantastic. Um, I mean, I you know, I can't thank Tim enough for finding it. Um, 
it, it, it was great, and, and I think you probably remarked, if I recall from the podcast, it was amazing how young he looked, because I think he's 41 in the photo. Right. And yet he looks really young. I mean, it's just incredible to look at those eyes and that face that, you know, you've read so much about this guy and, you know, written about him as I had, and, and here I am looking at a photo of him. I mean, it was fantastic. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. It uh, was, yeah. Talking about the Little Child Letter and um, and your collection of true crime memorabilia and books, what do you believe is your most prized piece in your collection or an item that holds the most personal significance to you? Yeah, it may sound morbid, and, and believe me, in 30 years of police work, there isn't much I haven't seen. I've, I've attended more autopsies than I care to remember. So um, I like to think that my crime interest and ripper interest is not prurient, and it's... You know, there's no sort of uh, morbid side to it, as it were. It's the historical mystery. But um, along with that true crime fascination comes a very great interest in capital punishment. Um, as you know, I wrote a book, Biography of the Hangman. And in my collection, I've got a set of berry letters and the rope that he used um, in the attempt to hang John Lee, the man they couldn't hang. It's, it's actually been used in nine executions, this rope. And I think probably that's that with the, the letters of provenance with it, has got to be the best group in my collection. But I've got many executioner's letters and uh, murderer's letters. I've got letters by Haig, the acid bath murderer, um, murder victims like Mrs. Crippen and uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, Ethel Christie of 10 Rillington Place. I, I, I mean, I've got a vast amount of stuff gathered over a lot of years, uh, you know, and all of it is uh, of great interest. Uh, right. Your um, postcard that belonged to Cora Crippen came up on the message boards a couple of years ago in re relation to um, the claims that the body in the cellar was uh, not Cora Crippen. And um, DNA testing seems to indicate that it, the remains are male. What, what is your opinion on, on the attempts to exonerate Holly Crippen f uh, for that crime? Yeah, I mean, I'm very loath. I'm very loath to uh, pass comment on something I don't really have full command of the facts, and I, in this case, I don't. I mean, I, yeah, I've seen the TV documentary, I've seen the story, um, but certainly the criteria, you, you know, in the testing of the samples, obviously would not meet forensic and police legal standards. So, um, you know, I'd be a lot happier if, say, the Crime Museum, the Black New Museum at... Um, at New Scotland Yard, they've got they've got some of the hair that was dug up in the cellar. I'd be much happier seeing that tested and, and perhaps um, the result given. Uh, so I'm not casting doubt on anybody's word, or it's just you know you've got slides that have been lying around for you know nearly a hundred years uh, in a hospital archive, and uh, they've been posted around, and unknown people have tested them, and uh, you know I mean I obviously I would say people are happy to swear by what they found out but uh, i'd certainly like to see you know see a say a confirmation test done on the on the stuff they've got at scotland yard but um and i have to add to that i've always been rather unhappy that um when they they dug the cellar up at 39 hilldrop crescent they only um only found this this, this flesh and hair and hair curler and piece of pajamas but no bones i mean where's the rest of the body and why bury just the, some of the flesh and you know, what the hell did he do with the rest of the body? That's always been a bit odd to me. But I'm not knowledgeable enough about it, really, to, you know, to cast an informed opinion. What true crime case are you interested in? Is there one, like, that captivates you equally as the Jack the Ripper case? 
Yeah, I'm very fond. And again, I, I read about this case um, back in 1961. It, it was in the same book that I read about the Ripper for the first time, and that was the 50 Most Amazing Crimes of the Last 100 Years. It's a great book. You can often see it on the internet, well worth buying. And um, the other case in there that grabbed me as a kid, and, and, and yes, because I, you know, I knew the place, there's a little village in Suffolk called Peasenhall, and it's the Peasenhall murder of 1902. And I was actually involved in... in assisting Martin Fider and Keith Skinner um, when they wrote the book on the case back in 1989 and, and Keith, Martin and I had some great fun doing it. Martin and Keith would come and stay with me and uh, and as you may well know, Martin's a great storyteller and, and it's always, he's always fun to be with in that situation and uh, we had a great time researching the murder, going back to the village, visiting the scene and that case really fascinates me. It's another undolved there's been, um, uh, it seems like, a spate of books coming out about old Victorian and Edwardian murder mysteries, new books. Like I'm thinking of the one on the Constant Kent case that came out last year, The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher. There seems to be a new Crippen book out you know, every few years or so. What's your opinion on why, why these cases seem to fascinate people, these old Victorian and Edwardian cases? It seems like they get better treatment than some more recent murder cases tend to be given kind of like a pulp paperback treatment. Um, but the yeah. old Victorian and Edwardian crimes kind of treated a little bit more seriously by researchers. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think it, say it was a more romantic age. Uh, life was a bit different then. Um, you'd also got the frisson added by the fact that if the murderer was caught, then he faced the hangman's noose. And, of course, the last hanging in this country was in in 1964 and we've had no executions since uh, in, and when a guy's on trial for his life i think that's always an added sort of buzz to the case if you like and um you know a lot of these cases are, are either mysteries or true classics and um that's i think a lot of them retain their interest probably if they happen today that you know they would soon be forgotten but um you do get the odd one nowadays that you like the yorkshire ripper saying um they do retain a lot of interest, but then that was, you know, perhaps an exceptional case. In the book on Constance Kent, have you read it, The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher? Yeah, well, Kate Summerscale, who wrote the book, visited me here twice, spent the whole day here, because I hold the um, Constance Kent archive, and, and she did a lot of research here. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've looked at, I've read most of the books on Constance Kent, because it's always been a cause celeb, and one of my favourite cases, and my favourite book on the case is actually Bernard Taylor's book, Cruelly Murdered, which was written back in the 1970s. And I mean, Bernard is a fantastic writer, and uh, if anyone can get hold of the book Cruelly Murdered, then I you know, I thoroughly recommend it to them. It's a fantastic read. And um, the conclusion that she reaches in the book um, is that she suggests that Constance Kent may have been innocent of that crime and was covering up for her brother. What are your opinions on, on Constance Kent's guilt in that murder case? Yeah, I mean, having read a lot on it, I've, 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 for many years I've had the, um, I've had the um, official files on it, photocopies of them. Um, I must have had those for about 10 or 15 years now, and um, I've got all the original books on the case, Stapleton's um, Great Crime of 1860, um, the... the summary by a barrister at law, an anonymous um, summary written in, um, as you confessed. And, I mean, I've little doubt, and, hey, this is my opinion, <laughs> you can disagree if they like, but I think there's no doubt she did it, and she did it with her brother William, uh, and the two of them were guilty. And when she confessed in, in um, 
1865, I'm sure she she took the whole blame and covered up for William, who emigrated to Australia. And then after her release, she ended up emigrating to Australia t- as well and living with him. Isn't that right? Yeah, she did. And, and in fact, there's a, a brand new book on the case just come out by an Australian lady. And, and um, Noeline Kyle, her name is. And it's a fantastic book. And, and uh, she gives the whole story of the murder, but she focuses on everything that Emily Kay, or Constance Kent as she was, everything she did after she went to Australia and tracks down the descendants and everything. It's a fantastic read. Oh, I'll have to get a hold of that. Now, back to your um, true crime collection. Uh, we did receive a uh, question from a listener, and that you had mentioned um, many Ripper documents and photographs that have gone missing from the files over the years. It's mentioned in pretty much every book on the case. Um, yeah. this, um, and um, she is wondering what their legal status might be if they showed up today. For example, if missing crime scene photograph or Ripper letter or an official police document is in the hands of a private collector – if, if that collector came forward to allow scholars to examine and photograph these documents, would the collector be considered the legal owner of these documents? Not, not if they're stolen property. Um, the documents that we know went missing in the 70s, i.e., you know, the, the, the written material on Donston Stevenson, um, the written material on Swanson's report and all the details... Um, of the Cunningham, the you know the um, Bellsmith material, that all went missing. I've got photocopies of it because luckily it was photocopied before it, it before it was stolen, and um, transcriptions are in the ultimate source book. Thanks, thanks to me having the um, the photocopies, which I hasten to have, provided by my very dear friend Don Rumbelow. Don's responsible for saving so much Ripper material. I mean, he really really should be recognised for what he did. Um, I mean, if any of that turned up now, then it's stolen property because it was in the official files and it was illegally taken. So if anyone's got it now, then they they would have to... If, it, say, a relative died and that was found to be in their possession, then their duty would be to, to hand it back to the police. And that is the case for... I mean, it wouldn't have mattered when the documents were stolen, if they were stolen in the 1970s as opposed to in the 1890s. The same rule would apply. Uh, not necessarily, no, because to have an offence of theft, you've got to prove it. And if the documents haven't been seen for over 100 years, you're never going to prove they were stolen in the first place. So you've got the situation where Jim Swanson had official, a few official papers that his grandfather had kept because they were relative and important to him. And, and I dare say lots of senior police officers did the same. I certainly think McNaughton did, and, and lots of modern police officers, I, I suspect, do or have done the same. Have retained documents that they feel are relevant to themselves, or or have some other significance. And um, if a family owns them, like the Swanson family owns these reports, then there's no way it's not their property. It is their property. They've had it for over hundred years, and uh, the, the police, are, as an organisation, are terrible. Um, the average policeman and, and senior officer has got no sense of history whatsoever. And the habit, in, certainly in the provincial forces, it's different with the Metropolitan Police because they, they have to hand certain files over to the um, National Archives. But in the provinces, uh, anything we've got in our forces out here in the provinces, seven years comes up and we destroy it. I mean, <laughs> and that's history being destroyed.
Now, you mentioned the Swanson marginalia. There's been discussion about not necessarily the authenticity, uh, or some might might say that, that the debate is about its authenticity, but basically about whether or not it was written by Swanson or it may have been written by his son. And um, you've been pulled into this debate. Um, would you like to uh, talk a little bit about your opinion on the Swanson marginalia for us? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you say I've been pulled into the b- debate. I suppose I'm guilty of starting it because um, the point was that um, as far as the Swanson ma- marginalia is concerned, I always have accepted it as genuine. And I, I still accept it as genuine. I mean, I've put that on the boards, for goodness sake. Uh, and if you look at all my books, I don't question the authenticity in any of my books. The situation is that um, in the early 90s, a certain leading Ripper authority contacted me and asked my opinion on the Swanson Marginalia. And I said, well, I don't know. I haven't seen it, really. I've seen a photocopy, which lots of people have, but I'd never seen it in the flesh, as it were. And he said, well, he said, I think the, the phrase at the bottom, Kosminski was the suspect, is very, very convenient and looks as if it might have been added on. And I just said, well... You know, I'd agree with you. Yes, it is very convenient, and, uh, you know, it looks like an, an appendage, as it were, but, um, you, you know, there was no real reason or evidential reason to consider it not to be genuine, and uh, and so I didn't. And um, and thus was the case, um, I mean, until 2000, when I actually got to see the book, um, Keith Skinner and I went to see Jim Swanson and spent the best part of a day with him, and I photographed the marginalia, and it was then I noticed that the um, the marginalia on page 138 uh, was different to the annotations on the rear free end paper, in that it was obvious a different pencil had been used, although ostensibly, when you look at the rear free end paper, it says continuing from page 138 as if it's written in all one operation. Uh, yet a different pencil had been used, and the writing had got slight differences. Not enough to, for me to suspect, hey, this is fake, because I immediately addressed that in my own head and thought, well, yes, but it's not unusual for people to have more than one pencil. And if there was any fake in writing the notes, he could have just picked a different pencil up. Uh, so that would have came for that. Uh, and, um, you, you know, there was no reason to think it, it might be fake, but I thought it was relevant. I thought it was something that should have been noticed and hadn't been. Um, and we were told in the A to Z that, you know, a forensic home office document examiner had declared it to be Swanson's um, handwriting. And yet I was to find out that all the, all the examiner had seen um, was a couple of photocopies. And quite frankly, um, you know, you don't examine handwriting on photocopies, or you shouldn't do. Not if, if the results are going to be published or, or any story is going to be set by them. So that, that rather surprised me. Um, and dear old Jim Swanson, he was a lovely guy, dear frail old man, and there was no way I was going to upset him, so, I mean, I didn't push the point with him, and, in fact, I kept quiet about it, and and after he died, you know, I've been dwelling on it, because I thought, well, there may be some significance, because, hey, maybe Swanson wrote this a lot, you know, a long time later, hence the mistakes you find on on the rear free end paper. So I put that on the boards, on the casebook message boards, uh, and of course, we all know the response. You know, I was suggested I I was committing libel, and um, I had some quite aggressive posts. And I, you know, I was accusing people of forgery. I said, "Hey, I'm doing no such thing. I'm pointing out a physical fact that I saw, and I feel that other people shouldn't, so they can make their own proper assessment. Was this written at the same time? Why? Why is it different? Um, I just felt people should know, and I was wrong for doing that. 
Uh, and I, I sought advice from various senior nephrologists who are close friends of mine, you know, long before then. And and they said, well, the obvious thing is, if you if you do publish that, everyone's going to start shouting forgery. I said, yeah, unfortunately, I know that. Even though I'm not saying it's been forged, I knew that some would respond in that way. And indeed, that's what happened. And um, But I was vindicated in the end because the book was donated to the Crime Museum at New Scotland Yard and, you know, the, the forensic document examiner, um, the Home Office guy employed at the yard, examined it and confirmed exactly what I'd said. So so I felt vindicated in saying it then. But that, that it meant no more than that, really. Now, what steps were taken to authenticate the little child letter? You had said that the handwriting used to um, examine the Swanson marginalia by the expert that was in the A to Z um, was based off of photocopies, and that's not not really the the way um, experts should go about them. Um, What um, Being the little child letter was on a typewriter, what uh, steps were taken to authenticate that document? Well, amazingly... um I mean, obviously, the provenance, as I knew it, was beyond question, and, and uh, I mean, everyone agreed with me. And um, I'd bought it from Eric Barton. Um, I knew where Eric had got it from, or unless he was lying, I knew where he got it from. And um, it, it was from George R. Sims' collection, and there were other items from Sims' collection with it, you know, with his signature on letters to him. It, it wasn't just a little child letter on its own. It was a bunch of stuff from Sims. So, I, I mean, there was absolutely no question um, that it was genuine. Uh, because that's not sufficient if you're going to, you know, suddenly say, well, hey, you know, what if? And, or people, or somebody might question it, although nobody did, in fairness to people. Nobody made the outrageous suggestion that it might not be. But, however, um, they decided that the, the book was published, uh, and obviously the letter was published, and then in 1996, a year after the book came out, uh, Channel 4 decided to do a documentary on it in their Secret History um, series, and they insisted on forensic examination before they would base, you know, spend 150000 or £200,000 on a TV programme. Um, they wanted to, to, to authenticate it, so I said, fine. And it, I actually personally took it to Dr Audrey Giles' house. She's a forensic document examinator, examiner, and she's one of the top ones. She's, she's a leading examiner in her field. And uh, she did everything from an ESDA test to close examination of the handwriting on it and uh, the typewritten letters on it. And she declared it, uh, as far as, in her expert opinion, to be genuine. And they even went further than that. They employed the the paper expert, Peter Bauer. Um, He came down to Ipswich and met me and uh, examined the letter, looked at the watermark, and he declared it um, to be genuine of the period as well. So, you know, it, it was forensically tested. You had mentioned George Sims, um, and in the contents of the little child letter, even though we don't have George Sims's an initial letter, the one that little child was replying to, but reading what little child says, it almost seems like as if George Sims only knew of Druitt's name, or at least uh, uh, by by its first initial, or little child was being coy in replying to Sims just using the uh, Dr. D. But it it seems that given the totality of the evidence that George Sims should have known um, Druitt's name years earlier before he wrote Little Child. What meaning can we read into how much of Druitt's story was known to people like George Sims and, and then some of the police officers that worked at the case before Little Child wrote that letter 
And the little child seemingly didn't know um, who Drew it was, or at least a Dr. D referred to by Sims. Yeah, that's right. Um, no, I've no doubt, probably, that little child didn't know who, who Drew it was. Um, bearing in mind that little child actually retired in 1893, and we know um, Swan, um, McNaughton's report wasn't written until February 1894, naming Drew Ostrog and Kosminski. Um, However, the full descriptions of the three suspects appears in Major Arthur Griffith's 1898 book, um, Mysteries of Police and Crime. So actually, everything but the names, uh, as almost as per the Abercrombie Conway draft version, um, appeared in print um, in a publicly widely available book, um, Mysteries of Police and Crime, in 1898. So all but the name was already in the public domain. Um, I think... Um, Given that uh, Sims was a very close friend of McNaughton's and Anderson's, for that matter, um, I'm sure he did know the name Druitt. But um, what people fail to realise is that, that Middle Child, albeit the chief inspector, was on a total, totally different social plane to Sims. Sims was a vastly wealthy author, playwright, uh, a respectable journalist with his own column. He wasn't a reporter. He, he was a journalist with a column in the Sunday Referee. Um, he, he was just a very famous and very wealthy man, and, a, and his social strata was at the level of people like McNaughton, uh, Sir Melville McNaughton and so on. So actually a working class, if you like, career policeman like Little Child would be a couple of, or a few steps down the social scale um, to um, uh, Sims, and hence I think this is why you find the salutation in the, in the Little Child letter, Dear Sir. Because if they felt they were on an equal footing, I'm, I'm sure that um, Middle Child would have addressed him as my dear Sims or, or dear Sims, which was the, the natural salutation for people on the same social scale or level. So it could well be that, uh, or, or I think it's almost certain that that, um, that Little Child didn't know the name Drew it, but I think possibly Sims did. And Sims being coy and not wanting a working class retired policeman who's now a private eye, not wanting him... You know, to, and probably McNaughton had said, "Well, look, whatever you do, don't give the name out because it's a respectable family." Um, uh, he coyly refers to it as Doctor D. Um, so, uh, you know, it could well be that Sims did know the name. And little child, although he mentions that Tumblety was uh, followed around when he was in London, and that there is a large dossier on Tumblety, little child gets some of the facts of Tumblety incorrect in that letter. Well, what, what, what facts does he get incorrect? Well, he seems to suggest that uh, Tumble T um, had drowned. No, he didn't. He said it was believed that Tumble T had committed suicide. Now, that could well have been the belief, and if that was the belief, then Little Child was correct. So how can we say he's wrong on that point? What other mistakes does he make? Well, I'm, I'm just curious to, to, to figure out exactly how much Little Child knew about Tumble T. Do you want me to chop in here? Yes. <laughs> Um, just, just a, I'm at that funny age where you get an idea in your head and if somebody says anything in between, it goes straight out. All I was going to say was, um, I'm sure, obviously, Little Child probably knew a lot about um, Tumblety in, in the fact that he was an Irish sympathiser, um, possibly a suspected Fenian, and I would think probably that, that was the reason he was quite well known to, to um, Little Child. And probably why they kept a watch on him when he was in London, um, because all Irish suspects were watched. I mean, the papers are full of it, and um, and it's referred to in official reports. Um, so, yeah, I think that would probably be the reason. And I think the large dossier would have been a, 
a special branch file, um, which, you know, unfortunately may still exist, but we'll never see, because the, the special branch material is never released to the public. Would they, would uh, Tumble-T have just dropped off their, were, were they only concerned in, in, in with Tumble-T if he um, entered the country, or and, and basically well, after he left, uh, um, well, their interest he, in him would drop, or? Yeah, I, I think once he'd gone, there wasn't a lot they could do. I mean, we've got to look at this in the practical sense of the fact that even as a Whitechapel suspect, um, and, and what degree of suspect he was, you know, I'm not even going to speculate on, but obviously of interest in that area, um, they would know they'd certainly got no hard evidence against him whatsoever, and they certainly wouldn't have enough to, to extradite him from the States. I mean, Don Rumlow's idea was that they might have been trying to trick him up back into Canada, where British law applied, and they could then extradite him for fleeing his bail on the, um, on the misdemeanor charges of gross indecency. But, um, you, you know, I mean, who knows? It's all speculation. So, um... As far as Little Child was concerned, his watch and his brief was this country and threats in this country. And once Tumblety had gone back to America and with probably no likelihood of ever returning, then the threat was gone. And I would think probably then, unless Tumblety had resurfaced over here, that Little Child would have probably taken very little interest in him. Okay. I want to get your opinion um, also on um, the Maybrook Diary. We were talking earlier about document examination. There seems to be uh, some debate on the Maybrook Diary and when, when it was written. What's your opinion on that? Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, John, you're on dangerous ground here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think most people know my opinion. Um, I don't care what anybody says, and believe me, I've read just about everything there is to read. I used to regularly visit Feldman's office before Shirley Harrison's book ever came out. Um, I've, I've seen things that I can never tell about. I know probably more than the average person, or certainly most people know diary. Um, I've got vast files on it here, including original documents that you'd say, hey, how the hell did you get hold of those? Um, uh, and my opinion is, it's a modern fake. Uh, circa 1990 and I'm not going to go into arguments or debates on that um, I've seen more than anybody contributing to the boards or reading the boards has seen and that's my opinion that's uh, what I believe and I won't be shaken on that Do you have any idea who might have written it? No no, no more than the people who've been discussed no and I, I never personally got involved in um, you know in, in that side of things um so it would probably be unfair for me to quote other people or to, um, you, you know, and there are certain things that still have to be kept quiet because certain people will get deeply into trouble and, uh, you know, that's just the unfortunate fact of life. Um, but uh, I'm pretty confident and, um, you know, one has to say uh, you, what degree Barrett, the Barretts were involved, I, I, you know, who knows? We know, certainly we know it was Mike Barrett who put it into the public domain um you, you know, and people tell you, well, he, he lied and you can never believe what he's saying. And, um, you know, you know his, his wife told contradictory stories. And um, you, you know, it's one of those things that you can debate until the cows come home and you, you'll never get two people with opposing opinions to, 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 to agree on it, rather. Um, and, and, and at the end of the day, it, it brings a lot of interest in, in the subject, you know. And I think the individual has to reach his own opinions on it. And if he's happy with that, fine. But, you know, I don't intend to try and convert anybody. I, I know it's a waste of time. 
Now, um, Sue Ironmonger, who uh, did the uh, examination of the Maybrook Diary, also examined the signatures of George Hutchison on his police statement and yeah. um, came to the conclusion that the, the, some of the signatures were done in a different hand. In the book The Ripper and the Royals, uh, it, it, uh, George William Topping Hutchison was the George Hutchison witness in Miller's court. And um, that didn't seem to be taken very seriously because it also involved, um, you know, uh, Randolph Churchill being or someone who looked like Randolph Churchill being um, the Ripper or at least the individual seen by George Hutchison on that night. But recently it seems that the signatures of George Hutchison and uh, signatures on census reports seem to match. Do you believe that um, George William Topping Hutchison's story was correct after all, or I, I, I mean, it's something I read many years ago, and I've I've never really studied it or examined it. Or I, I tend on these because you've got people who who specialise in these these esoteric areas. Right. I mean, I, I greatly respect um, Bob Hinton for his knowledge of the um, you know of the Hutchinson side of things, and I think probably Ben might have a thing or two to say about it as well. <laughs> It's far better yeah. for me to, you know, to wade in water that's way above my head and, and get involved in those debates when really, um, you know, I've got no first-hand knowledge. I have to say, however, I've actually handled the original statement, um, the Hutchinson statement, and I did notice that, you know, on the statement, I think it's the second page looks different to the, to the other signature. Um, but it's not unknown, believe me, for policemen, once they've taken a witness statement, to think, damn, I forgot him to sign the second page, and then... <laughs> I won't say I've ever seen anyone do it, and I, I certainly wouldn't do it myself, <laughs> but it's not unknown for a policeman to fake the signature <laughs> just <laughs> just so he doesn't get into trouble for the second page not being signed. So, I mean, that's always a possibility. I'm not saying it happened here, but um, it's amazing all the things that you have to take into consideration when you, you know, you might see something sinister in something, and yet there can be a perfectly rational and, uh, you know, and, and an uninvolved and... Um, straightforward answer that you know that means nothing um who are you in your opinion are are the top suspects well i, I you know I, uh, I i think at the end of the day well we can write ostrog off can't we because i think phil sugden's fantastic research is and, and again i have to say he's a very dear friend of mine philip and i was speaking to him last week only and uh you know I'd, he, he's a great advisor for me and a mentor to me if I've got a problem, I'll speak to you know I'll speak to Phil about it, and I greatly respect him. So so I think you you know you you've always got to get you know credit him with a you, you know his opinion on these things. So, um, and and um, Philip, uh, you had written um, on the message boards that Philip no longer believes that George Chapman is the top suspect, but that you and he agree on on a, a preferred suspect, and it's neither Chapman nor Tumblety. Um, um, yeah, I know where we're going here. Um, I, I think I was probably being deliberately cryptic. Um, I think probably at the end of the day and ultimately, Philip and I would um, be very, very close on this and, and agree with each other. Um, Philip has never thought Chapman was a ripper, despite, you know, what people state. Oh, yeah, I can't understand why Sugden preferred. All Philip has ever said and still says is that of a, you know, of a bad bunch of suspects, he's the best one. Uh, and that's just Philip's opinion. He said, but that doesn't mean he's Jack the Ripper, and I don't think he is. So Philip always, uh, Philip's a straightforward, straight-spoken Yorkshireman, and he'll speak his mind. Uh, and Philip would never commit himself like that. And, and ultimately, I think his beliefs and mine run run very closely together. 
his beliefs and yours run closely together in that we have no idea who Jack the Ripper is. Is that what you I meant think, by that? I, yeah, I think that's got to be the ultimate answer, yeah. Um, you, you know, and Colin Wilson, <laughs> dear old Colin, I mean, I've known Colin a lot of years, and, and Colin says some very sage things. And <laughs> I mean, when a, he, he spent many, many a day thinking about the Ripper, and uh, he, he actually said once that, you know, he can't, bear the idea of dying not knowing who Jack the Ripper was you know you, you can't just can't face the idea that it'll remain a totally unsolved mystery uh, so so Colin I, I think a lot of people um, would probably say that they look at they look at everything they read everything and and they decide for themselves who they prefer and you know if you're happy with your own preferred suspect then you know I think that's great I think we've all you know who we prefer or who we think or you know, think is the best, makes the best ripper, then um, fair enough. And I, and I think if that satisfies the individual, that's great. Uh, but I do think, you know, even I, we've all got a bias of some sort or other, and and that will affect your thinking to a degree, you know, whether you want to, it to or not. Um, but your, your, your original question was, uh, you know, who do I think remain the best suspects? Well, you know, Ostrog is out, um, thanks to Philip, ultimately. Um, which leaves Druitt, which, are, you know, you've, you've got to say he's still there as a suspect. Kosminski, certainly, he's still there as a suspect. Um, Tumblety, I don't believe, has been written off, uh, so he's still there as a suspect. Um, but I think once you get beyond those three, perhaps, you, 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 you know, you're beginning to struggle. And I have to qualify all that by saying there is not a shred of evidence against any of them. And what about Thomas Catbush? Yeah, I mean... Certainly, I you know I think he still remains a possibility, and and I would agree here with with A. P. Wolf, you know that you know it's very odd that uh, McNaughton writes him off out of hand as a suspect when you know everything you read, you think, well, hey, he is a suspect, you know. Um, fair enough, he's only sort of poking women with a knife, you know, years later. But um, by the same token, you, you know he's got to be there as a suspect. Um, you know, it is possible, and he was he was certainly um, mad enough, so. I mean, who knows? <laughs> now, when you uh, have all these different police officials giving their differing opinions um, on who uh, they believe Jack the Ripper was or most likely or more likely than Cutbush or whatever, however way they want to phrase it, or you have Aberling dismissing out of hand Druitt and Kosminski and saying that Chapman, he believed that, uh, event, or at least in one of his statements, he believed that Chapman um, seemed to be Jack the Ripper. Do you get the sense that they that none of them really had any idea, or is there one police official's opinion that have more weight than, than in others, or what's your opinion on that? Yeah, well, we, uh, again, we can all have opinions on that. I devote a chapter to it, or a couple of chapters to it, in, in Scotland Yard Investigates. Um, I, I think the only trouble here is, and, and, and I think people look on me as anti-Anderson, which, I, you know, I'm actually not. Um, my argument's always been that um, when his image was being boosted, there was so much, you know, pro-information given on him, and the things that actually detract from, from him being correct or, or even you know, believing what he said, um, had never been fully presented. Uh, you know, there were certain things that were always missed out from the published works uh, and that a lot, not, lot of people never got to see. Um, he's exceedingly important, Anderson, and he was no fool. I mean, he doesn't hold a job like that down for many a year, you know, if he doesn't know what he's doing. And, um, you know, so, I, no, I don't write him off out of hand. I don't write anybody off out of hand. But you have to look at what they said. You have to look at the context in which it was said. 
you, you know, if you're using them, which you have to in cases with, you know, as the historical record that survives, um, then you have to assess its trustworthiness and, you know, how much credit can be accorded to it. I mean, this is the reason. I mean, I mean we probably all know that, that Paul and Martin uh, accord the greatest credit to, to Anderson and um, uh, and then they proceed to say why and, um, you know, they make some very valid arguments and, you know, the thing is, you have to say, well, <laughs> do I agree or, or do I feel they haven't looked at it enough or, or whatever? Um, but they cannot be denied in that he must be looked at. What he said must be assessed, but there, it does leave a lot of serious questions. Um, so I think, you know, we've we've really got to force ourselves to be objective, stand back, become the devil's advocate, uh, and perhaps look at these things very objectively. And, hey, I've had to change a lot of my opinions on Tumblety and some of the things we had in our early book, because that book was hurried through in 10 months. That's research and writing in 10 months flat. I mean, it, had we had years writing it or, or more time writing it, um, we'd have got a lot more in it. I, I don't think we we did too badly for the amount of time we had to write it. And certainly Paul Ganey, he covered the Civil War and the American side of it. I did all the Ripper side. Um, uh, and it was a lot of work. And I was a serving police officer at the time. I got I got one weekend off a month. And, and here I am writing half a book because Ganey and I wrote about 50% each. And it was a lot of hard work, uh, and it caused more than one sort of, shall we say, domestic dispute. <laughs> you know, when my wife, who wants to go out at the weekend, finds me stuck at the keyboard um, writing a book, you know, and um, you wouldn't believe that, you, you know, the, the problems we had writing it. But at the end of the day, it's not perfect, and, and I don't think any suspect will, will ever be perfect. And a suspect book is bound to be biased. It's bound to be selective. Because obviously you're going to select the material that, you know, would more greatly suggest that uh, it applies to the man you're talking about. By the same token, if you've got something relevant that militates against him, then I think you're, you're duty-bound to include that as well, so, so that your readers can draw, you know, a fair assessment. And certainly there are a lot of things, a lot of things in, you know, in our book that, um, that have been added to since, which is why I think it's most important for people to get Tim Reardon's book, um, which is going to have a heck of a lot more information on Tumblety in it. Um, and then if Roger Palmer, who's a fantastic researcher also, if I'd love Roger to do a book on Tumblety. If he ever did a book, um, you know, then I'd recommend that being bought as well because I think American researchers have got a lot lot to add um, to, to, to the story. Would you ever consider revising your Tumblety book or, or are you uh, satisfied with it enough and just uh, to just encourage uh, readers to go um and read tim reardon's book or any other and you know or any other books that may come out in the future on the subject well my initial my my initial idea was was to get off it I, you know by 1996 i wanted to drop tumblety i'd had enough i i'm not a suspect oriented person actually I, i'm interested in the whole picture i'm interested in looking at all suspects i'm looking at all evidence what everybody had to say gathering copies together of original information because I prefer primary information to secondary information uh, and that's where I'd rather be so it was a deliberate choice to once we'd updated the book to drop it and I had been asked by a publisher would I be interested in revising it and I said no I said I want to write objective books on the case um, and although Paul Ganey I believe I haven't seen Paul for several years but I think he would like to or would probably still like to update it um, 
but uh, I, I don't think I'm the person to do it, I, and I don't think I'd want to do it. Um, you know, gallingly, people, some people still call me the Tumblety Man, and I, I do find that a trifle annoying. But um, you know, it's it's something I, I'd really like to get away from. Um, a listener uh, submitted a question. This is on a completely different subject. But um, it's uh, concerning the photograph that appears in Scotland Yard Investigates of H Division. We know that Tim Rudin discovered the first photograph of Francis Tumblety. In this photograph of H Division, um, you, I, you and uh, Don Rumbelow identify a gentleman in the picture um, who you believe, or at least Rumbelow uh, feels, uh, fits the description of Inspector Aberline. How confident are you that that individual in that photograph is Aberline? I don't, well, quite honestly, I, I'm not happy to say it was or, or that it even looks like him. So, you know, that, that's the reason you see the caption in the book has got Don's name on it alone because it was Don that commented on that and thought that and he wanted to put it in the book. And I said, fine, but confine the caption to your own name and not mine because, you know, I really don't want to commit myself to that. I found that photo at, um, you know, at, at um, the Metropolitan Police Museum many years ago, many, many years ago. And a close friend of mine, Neil Storey, wrote a book, The Grim Almanac of um, Jack the Ripper's London. I think that was the one he put it in. Um, and, and he used that photo. He saw it in my collection and said, hey, I'd like to use that. Um, so he published it in his book, which was the first publication of it. Uh, and then it was spotted, and somebody who started the guessing game is Abilene in the photo. Um, and we all saw what happened from there, and hence my... <laughs> uh, my thread that I started on the case book, Why Didn't They Ask Evans?, um, but so um, you know, it's an interesting picture, and it's H Division, which I always said it was. Um, and yes, Aberline could well be on there. It's the right time period. He was there for 14 years as local inspector, so he's ever likely to be on there. But I certainly wouldn't commit myself to saying that one of the guys in the polar hat was Aberline. <laughs> And if I remember correctly, uh, you put the photograph on the casebook message boards before it appeared. I think it was in Ripperologist magazine. Um, Ripper notes. Oh, in Ripper notes, and then yeah. um, and then it appeared in your in your book, Scotland Yard Investigates. I know. You, I mean, you know, anyone who reads any of the message boards knows that you you put up a lot of stuff, um, original documents, photographs, and stuff. Um, is there no limit to? Um, I mean, what, what's your feeling about posting stuff to internet message boards? Is there a limit to what you would reveal? Like you, you threw out the picture of who might be Aberlene, or at least the the um, H Division one, with uh, on an internet message board before you you published in a in a book. Um, a lot of people do the reverse; they'll hold something like, um, for instance, I'm thinking of Philip Hutchison's Whitby collection, and and then his uh, photograph of Duck filled yard that was on the internet for about 24 hours before he took it down in order to publish it in, in a book. What are your feelings on sharing stuff on the internet as opposed to waiting for it to be publicized in a book? Yeah. Well, I should qualify all that by saying that in the case of the H Division photo and the possibility of Abilene being in the photo, um, Don and I had planned to, to include that in our book. And by the time anything was ever put on the boards uh, about it going in Ripper Notes, Don and I had already, we were, we were at proof stage with the book and it was in there. And I said to Don, you're not going to like this very much. <laughs> the photo we're using in our book is going to appear in Ripper Notes. <laughs> because, um, you, you know, it had been taken out of um, Neil Storey's book. And, um, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. And I said, well, i tell you what, I found it and I'm going to be the first to bloody publish it. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> hence the why didn't they ask Evan thread and I put it on there so so I picked everybody to the post because it was my discovery and I wasn't going to have it appear somewhere else first if I could help it I mean that sounds a bit sort of pompous but you, you, you know Don and I were more than a little missed that it was going to be in the public domain before our book came out and um, so I put it in there with the whole saga appearing on there and um, you know that's how that came about I'm, I've helped a lot of people with information and photos and I'm happy to do it and um, but I think by the same token, if somebody's an author, if you're writing a book and you've got something, especially in Ripper World, when you think to find something that's never been published or seen or a photo, um, that's a damned hard thing to find now in Ripper World. Um, I think about the only new, actually, new stuff photo-wise in Nick Connell and, uh, and my, um, you know, new edition of um, The Man Who Hunted is, is a photo of... Um, or a couple of Robin O'Dell's photos that he took back in 1963 for his book, and the photo of P.C. Pennant, who, who found the Pinch and Street Torso, which was a new one. Um, but to find something really new in Ripper World is, hey, that's, you know, we can find photos of locations, and but something really germane to the case or to the Whitechapel murders is very difficult to find. And if you're an author and you're going to publish it, you'd be stupid to post it on the internet, wouldn't you? <laughs> Before you put it in your book. <laughs> Well, that's my opinion, anyway. Um, is uh, are you working on any um anything currently? I no, I'm not. Well, not. not I've just done a TV documentary. I, it must be my age. I can't remember if it's um, Discovery Channel or History Channel. It's American, anyway. Um, I had to go out to London. It's um, I was interviewed, and and it's um, it's pushing Tumblety. So you'll find, oh, <laughs> you'll find me saying <laughs> you're finding me saying more about Tumblety than I'm really happy to say, <laughs> but they were paying me, so I'm not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I went up there and did that, and and that's with a, a fantastic guy um, who's a forensic um, uh, profiler, and, and he's he's a bee's knees. It's Brent Turvey, whose name uh, is probably known to anybody in that field, and uh, he's a great guy, and uh, I think he's going to. You know, he's going to be doing most of the, um, you know, the, what, what should we say, profiling of what the killer may or may not have been. And um, I think it'd be an interesting program. It'll certainly be different to a lot of the other Ripper documentaries. And you were also, as I mentioned in the introduction, brought in as a creative consultant for the movie From Hell. Um, can you ex- kind of describe to us how that came about? Yeah, From Hell. Well, I, I, um, I, I don't know really how much I'm supposed to say. Keith and I had worked together um, on the script before it ever came to anything. We did some legal work for 20th Century Fox. Um, so we'd, we'd seen the script at a very early stage. And then I was contacted by um, Albert Hughes, one of the Hughes brothers. They, in fact, came to my house here to look at the collection, along with various the, the cinematographer and the set designer and a couple of others came here. They were particularly interested in the letters that I'd photographed. And, and they asked me to be... Hit, Keith and, and me to be um, historical advisors, which which we obviously agreed to. I was supposed to take Johnny Depp round the East End, but um, I was out <laughs> when they phoned up to arrange it. So Don Rumbelow did it, and um, and then uh, the Hughes brothers um, flew Rosie and myself out to Prague um, during the filming. So I spent four days with Johnny Depp and the Robbie Coltrane and the cast, um, you know, involved in the filming, the filming, which was great fun, but. Uh, in the loosest sense of the word, I was historical advisor because, needless to say, I don't agree with the script. It was obviously, um, 
you know, the Masonic nonsense rides again, and um, there was nothing I could do to change the script. So, you know, we just sort of advised on minor historical points, like, well, no, Tower Bridge wasn't there in in 1888, and and things like that. But um, yeah, it, you know, it was fun, and um, I was pleased to be involved. And you were um, uh, satisfied with the finished product? I mean, the movie in general, or? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> not <laughs> not at a factual level. Um, I, I've actually got the original script here, signed by there is Johnny Depp signed it, and one or two other people. Uh, <laughs> and the guy who wrote the script, um, he's actually put on there for Stuart with apologies to the facts. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, that'll be a bit of a collector's item one day. But um, so, you know, I mean, it it was accepted. It's Hollywood. It's entertainment. Uh, Is it fun? Do people enjoy it? And I think you either enjoy the film or you don't. Um, You you know, the the purist is never going to enjoy it because there's so much nonsense in it, so many mistakes in it. And, uh, you you know, you just have to suspend your your belief and and watch it as pure entertainment. And if you can enjoy it, great. You know, um, you know, it's not my cup of tea, I have to say, but. Yeah, it's well made, and, and there's some atmospheric scenes in it, but um, I didn't like the way they portrayed Abilene, and, and and I don't know if Johnny would have been totally happy with it. Um, I mean, he's a great Ripper fan, Johnny, and um, I chatted to him at some length about the Ripper, and a uh, very knowledgeable guy he is as well, but, uh, you know, he, he's paid to play a part, and that's what he does. Is there anything that uh, you'd like to address um, on the podcast that I haven't asked about? No, not really. I mean... Uh, on a personal note, I'd like to say here that I think you're doing a great job, Jonathan. Um, the podcasts are really enjoyable, and it must be great for people to listen to you know to to the legendary names of Ripperology, like you know like Paul and uh, Martin. And it, I just think it's a great forum, and it's nice, you know. And AP Wolf, I mean, hey, you can hear AP for the first time on the podcast, and that's really great. And I think you're doing a great job. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, it's taken me about two years to convince you to come on the show. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm really happy that you finally decided to come on. And maybe uh, you'd be up to uh, appearing in, like, a group setting with uh, with more – that's my son, sorry – with, um, with uh, you know, as a part of a roundtable. So. Yeah, I'll have to think about that. When you – you know, I suppose in some ways um, I can be described as a bit of a dinosaur and – you know this distrust and uh, in technology, and not not being a particularly uh, adept hand with a computer. I mean, I, I don't have Skype loaded up, and um, I don't have a headset on on the computer. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'll perhaps make some inquiries and see see what I can do. But yeah, I, I mean, it's a great concept, and I think it's nice for people to chat. And um, you, you know. I, I, it's it's an area that um, nobody's explored before, and I, as I say, you're doing a great job. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for being a guest on the show today. Yeah, thanks very much, John. We'll have to talk again. Yes, definitely. Thanks. And that was Rivercast's one-on-one interview with Stuart P. Evans. I want to thank Stuart Evans for being a guest on the show today, as well as everybody who emailed in their questions. We are a not-so-weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel Murders, available at the website www.casebook.org. We are also available in the iTunes Music Store in their podcast section under Society and Culture slash History. If you have any questions or comments or anything you'd like to say to myself or any of the guests on the podcast, 
feel free to email us at rippernet at gmail.com. And I thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.